month we had a series of sermons on the life of Jesus and some of the events in his life and some of the characteristics that he is as our Savior and some things that have already been percolating in my mind a little bit it kind of sort of came to a head when Brother Craig gave his sermon about Jesus as God becoming flesh and things sort of came, came together for me on a the, on the sermon I've been thinking about and so this, this afternoon what I'd like to do is talk to you about a few things that I've been studying recently and things that I've been thinking about, ask the question, why did he do it? Why did Jesus have to become a man in order to save us? And there can be many different answers to this question depending on where you're coming from and what you're really wanting to know. If we say, why did Jesus come to earth? We sing a song sometimes, why did my Savior come to earth? And the answer is John three sixteen, because he loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was God's motivation for sending Jesus to this earth. But the question I would like to talk about, if you think about, you know, you could take, follow this up with, well, why did he love us? I don't know the answer to that question. If you know it, you let me know. I don't know why God would love me. I just accept the fact that he did. But what I really want to get down to this afternoon is, why did Jesus have to become a man to do this? And we can talk about the wither twos and the why fours. It's no good asking the questions of, well, why did God choose this method when God is infinitely powerful and and wise and he could have conceivably have done any number of things to save us. He could have created us as a people that naturally just served him, created us the way he wanted us to, and we're already that way, but he didn't do that. He created us as a people that have free will, and so therefore we ultimately make the decision to rebel against him by committing sin. And therefore, because of that, God had to have a plan of salvation. God chose to send his son to this world in order to live a perfect life, to shed his blood, to die on the cross, and be risen again the third day. This is the method he chose. And so I want to take a closer look this morning at why that was necessary. Why did God choose the method of sending Jesus to this earth? Before we get too much further, I want to talk about what we're doing here this afternoon. We're kind of getting down in the weeds a little bit, so to speak. I look at this as sort of a faith-building exercise because as a person comes to God and obeys the gospel, that's really what they need. All they need, and Craig did a beautiful job this morning explaining the method of baptism to us. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, he, he talked about the gospel. He said, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, by which you are saved and wherein you stand. And he talked about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, this is the gospel, and you're saved by this gospel. You stand in this gospel. And Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. This is what a person needs to know in order to be saved, in order to be buried with Christ in baptism. That Jesus died, that he was buried, he rose again. And we believe that and we obey that in baptism. To maybe try to clear that up a little bit, what I'm trying to do here this morning. I don't like geometry, really. I took it when I was a sophomore in high school. I had the most boring geometry teacher in the history of boring geometry teachers. I'm not going to say his name, but a couple of people in here probably know who he was. I don't know how I learned a thing. I don't know how I passed that class. I don't remember anything about it. I know I slept some. But, you know, this is the Pythagorean theorem. And I know that if I want to figure out how long C is, that I can do A squared plus B squared equals C squared. I don't know how that works, but I know it does work. And I can add and I can say, well, if A is 
See, if that's 2 and that's 4, then 2 times 2 is 4, and 4 times 4 is 16, and you add those together and you take the square root of that number and you get C. I don't know how it works. You know, Einstein proved the theory, this theory when he was a, a young child. Um, and maybe some of you know how to prove this theorem. I don't know how to do it. I just know that it works. That's all I need to know. Uh, if I was a geometry nerd, then I would dig in deeper. And so what I want to do this afternoon is we're going to be Christian nerds, and we're going to dig a little deeper. This is the formula that saves us. Christ died for our sins. He shed his blood. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, we obey from the heart a form of that doctrine, as is stated in Romans chapter 6, 17. We're buried with him into baptism. We're baptized into his death where he shed his blood. We're buried with him in by baptism. The body of sin is destroyed. We're raised to walk in newness of life. That's the formula. Do we necessarily have to know how that works in order to believe it and obey it? Not necessarily. But what we're doing here is we're being Christian nerds. We're building our faith. We're getting down in the weeds and talking about why did Jesus have to become a man in order for this to be possible? You consider the problem that we have. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, At that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The problem that we have is that we have sin. That's the problem that we have. We're without hope. We've got a problem in our life that we can't handle. We can't deal with our own sin. And so we need somebody to take care of that. Without Christ, we have no hope. We are people who need to be saved but cannot save ourselves and cannot be saved without the intervention of Jesus. We need a mediator. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect mediator. What's a mediator? Well, if you look at the word, it's kind of related to the word medium, which means it's, it's not small, it's not large, it's in the middle, right? Well, a mediator is someone who stands in the middle. Mediator brings two parties together, and that mediator is a neutral third party that represents both sides of the table. And they bring them together, and they, and they know what the other one is, want, they know what both parties need, and know what they want, and they try to reconcile the two. That's exactly what Jesus Christ does for us. And so therefore, Jesus is the perfect mediator. Why? Well, he's perfect because he's God, and he can do what we can't. He can be perfect. But he's also a per perfect mediator because he's also a man. He became a man, and therefore can do what God, by his very nature, can't do. Okay, I want to stop there a second because some of you are thinking, wait, did he just say God can't do something? I went to school with a guy in high school. He said, can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? Don't even think about the question. It's a waste of time, Okay. Is there anything that God can't do? What I mean by that, it's against his nature. We're not limiting God's power. We're not limiting the things that he, his abilities. We're not placing any more limits on God than he has placed on himself. And in fact, it's just against his nature. We were talking just after lunch a while ago, and we were, Carrie was talking about how, you know, it's against his nature to eat a small meal. It just doesn't go, it's not his nature. Right? Well, it's against God's nature to do certain things. The Bible says it's impossible for God to tell a lie. That means he can't lie. It doesn't mean he doesn't have the ability or the power or whatever. It's just not who he is. God doesn't lie. And in terms we can understand, it's impossible or God can't lie. And when we look at this formula that we're looking at this morning and the why Jesus is the perfect mediator, he's the perfect mediator because he can do what we can't do 
As God, he can do what we can't do. And as a man, he can do what God doesn't do or can't do in his nature. So this is the solution. Jesus, who is God, but also became a man, those two things together are exactly what we need as a mediator between us and God. It's not enough just for someone to stand up and say, I'll be the mediator. I'll die for for the people. I'll take the sins of the world on me. Nobody wants me as their Savior, and no offense to any of you, I don't want you as my Savior. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've done. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so the mediator has to be perfect, has to be pure, and that's what Jesus Christ was. We need someone to show us how to do it right. We need someone to show us how to love God and to serve and to be kind to one another. And we need someone to show us how to do it perfectly. And that person has to be perfect because then they then have to go to the cross and shed their blood and die and be risen again the third day. That's why Jesus is our perfect mediator. That's why that's the solution that we have. So what is it that God can't do? I know that's going to be hard for people to get used to, saying God can't do something. What is it against God's nature that required him to become a man and to be our mediator in that way? The first thing that I thought of is surrendering, submitting, and humbling himself. You know, this is the first thing we have to do if we're going to come to God. If we're going to obey the gospel, Craig talked about it this morning. What do we do? We submit ourselves. We surrender ourselves to the will of God in baptism. He talked about it. There's nothing in this water. Brother Jeffrey does a good job of keeping this clean, but every now and then there's a cockroach in there. Not his fault. It just happens. But there's nothing in that water that saves us. It's submitting to the will of God, surrendering ourselves, humbling ourselves, admitting I've got sin and I can't take care of it myself, and I trust God to do that. But you see, that's something that God doesn't do naturally. You know, if you ever go read the book of Job, you're reading, you know, we talk a lot about Job and his patience and what he endured, and there's some great examples there for us to follow. But if you get past chapter 2 and Job's friends come into the picture, you're going to see a lot of discussion between Job and his friends talking about the nature of God and why he punishes us and why bad things happen to good people and, you know, Job's friends make suppositions about, well, you must have done something wrong. And he goes back and says, God is punishing me unjustly. And back and forth and back and forth for 38 chapters. And finally, in chapter 38, God, his voice comes out of a whirlwind. And I don't know why he put up with it as long as he did. But finally, he starts to tell all these men, Job and his friends, tells them how the cow ate the cabbage, basically. He starts out in verse number 38. He says, now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? And God goes on for about three chapters just telling Job and his friends, I'm God and you're not. I've created the world and you know nothing about it. When you look at nature, when you look at the heavens, when you look at the animals that have been created and how it all works together and how it all is controlled, I set all that in motion. Do you have any idea how I did it? Can you be like me at all? And what God is saying to them is, I'm God. You're not. Just stop talking. Just stop talking and do what I tell you to do, basically. God doesn't surrender to anyone. God doesn't submit to anyone. God doesn't humble himself to anyone because he's God and nobody else is. That's just how it is. 
And so in order for God to come to earth and to submit and to die, he can't do it unless he becomes a man. And that's why we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We read this verse all the time. There's a reason we read it all the time. Because God did something that God just doesn't do. The very fact of him becoming a man was an act of submission, an act of surrender, an act of humility. And he took that all the way through his life, serving, serving and suffering and dying. And the only way that God could do that was becoming a man that had the ability to do that, that had the ability to surrender to the will of God, that had the ability to humble himself and submit to that. It's the only way God could do it, by becoming a man. Number two, obedience. Very closely related, if you think about it. Scriptures are clear that God requires obedience from us, and Craig touched on that this morning. The obedience is the part of of baptism that saves us, not anything in the water. Again, who does God obey? We read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him the path of justice? So on and so forth. Who is it that directs the Spirit of God? Who does God obey? God doesn't obey anyone because he's God and no one else is. God doesn't obey. Angels obey God. The winds and the waves obey God. We're supposed to obey God. God doesn't obey anybody. It's not in his nature. But if we need someone to teach us how to live and show us how to be obedient, God can do that if he becomes a man. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Brother Craig touched on this verse when he, when he talked last month, and this kind of got me to thinking about more of what I was already thinking about. He learned obedience. Did God not know what obedience was or understand it? No. He's always required obedience from his people. But this was the first time that God had ever obeyed anything. When he became the Son of God, when he became Jesus Christ, now God understood what it was to obey. The first time he'd ever obeyed anyone in his existence. And he was only able to do that and show us how to do it. And as as we read earlier, becoming obedient even to the point of the death of the cross. Only able to do that by becoming a man. Because God, in his natural state, doesn't obey anybody. Number three, to endure temptation. You know, temptation is something that we all face. The Bible is very clear that temptation itself is not sin, but rather giving in to that temptation. But we need a mediator. We need somebody to stand between us and God. And how can God do that if he doesn't know what it's like to be tempted? God can't be tempted. The scriptures tell us in James chapter 113, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God can't be tempted with evil. God can't be tempted to commit sin. And so he became a man. He became Jesus Christ in order for us to realize that he does understand what we go through. And to know that we have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was on all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Becoming a man allowed Jesus to be tempted just like we are. 
And by doing this and yet having no sin, it shows us that he understands what we go through. And it's not that God didn't understand before. He didn't understand what it was like to be us. But we now realize and understand that God does understand. We have a high priest who went through what we go through all the time. He understands everything that we endure when it comes to temptation. Yet he did so without sin. And doing that, he teaches us how to resist temptation. He teaches us and shows us the example of how that's done. But that only happens if God becomes man. Number four, to suffer and to bleed and to die. We understand the point of this. God demands a sacrifice for sin. The redemption of the human race depended on the Lamb of God going to Calvary, shedding his blood and paying the price. But how does God become a perfect sacrifice for us when God can't suffer and he can't bleed and he can't die. God is a spirit, Jesus says, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, John 4.24. He told the woman at Jacob's well when explaining to her what true worship is, he said God is a spirit. That means God doesn't have a body, which means that God can't suffer. He can't bleed. He can't die. In Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Everlasting to everlasting. You know, we can't, it's hard enough to wrap our heads around eternity going forward. When I think about eternity someday and how it will never end, no matter the destination, that it'll never end, it's just hard for me to fathom that. But to consider that we're used to people being born and then dying, that's not how it is with God. God exists outside of time. God created time. He doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. He just is. I am that I am. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, and the last. God has always existed. And he doesn't have a body. He can't suffer. He can't bleed. He can't die. But without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, Hebrews tells us. God demanded the perfect sacrifice. And the only way for him to be that perfect sacrifice was becoming a man. And therefore, as Jesus died on the cross, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. God was able to suffer, and through that he learned obedience. God was able to bleed. He was able to shed his blood, and he was able to die on the cross for our sins because he became a man, but not without that. Finally, God can't bear sin. You ever wonder, why couldn't God just save us? You know, the scriptures tell us that God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all men to come to repentance. He wants every single person who's ever lived to be saved. For God so loved the world. If that's the case, if God wants us to be saved, why doesn't he just save us? It's the whole, well, can God make a rock so big he can't pick it up? If he wants to save us, just save us. Why can't he do that? Why can't he just say, your sins are forgiven, come on home? Because a price has to be paid. Because he, sin has to be punished. Someone has to bear the burden. Someone has to pay the price. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. God can't bear sin. That's what this is all about, isn't it? From Genesis chapter 3 through Revelation, from the beginning of time until now, it's all been about paying the price for sin. Sin. 
God can't bear it. Your iniquities have separated you. God can't be tempted with it. God can't commit sin. He can't stand to be in its presence. He can't stand the sight of us when we have sin in our lives. He's hidden his face from you. That's the whole point. So God can't just simply forget about that. It's like saying water's not wet. It just can't be done. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. God can bear sin and did bear sin by becoming a man, by going to the cross. There's something really important I want to talk about in this because it's important for us to understand. It's not that God just let us off because an innocent man died. It's not that God just said, okay, you can go free because this innocent man was put to death. That doesn't make any sense. It's like saying, here's a man who committed murder. And this man has been convicted of this murder, and he's going to be punished, and the, and the penalty is the death sentence. He's going to get a lethal injection, and he's going to die. And the defense attorney stands up and says, oh, wait a minute. Over here's an innocent man. Kill him instead. And let this guy go free. That's not justice. That doesn't accomplish anything. That doesn't pay the price. But now take another man. He's worked his entire life and never paid taxes. He's 65 years old. He's retired and never paid a dime to Uncle Sam in his life. And the IRS figures it out. And they come to him and they say, hey, you owe us millions of dollars in back taxes. And you need to pay us that money. The guy says, hey, I'm 65 years old. I don't work. I don't have that kind of money. I'll never be able to make that kind of money. I can't pay you. They say, okay, you're going to jail the rest of your life. What does he do? Suppose this man has a brother or a sister or a son or a daughter, a friend, a relative, a neighbor, an enemy who says, you know what? I'm a billionaire. I've got all kinds of money, and I'm going to pay this man's debt. Here's the money that he owes you. You can let him go free. That works, right? What's the IRS going to do? Turn down that money? Has the IRS ever turned down any money that we know of? No, they don't care where the money comes from. They just want their money. Because somebody else has paid the price for this man. And that's what the death of Jesus does for you and I. It's not that just that an innocent man died and we go free. Jesus very literally bore our sins, my sins, every sin I've ever committed, every sin I will commit in the future, the same for you, the same for the rest of the world. He literally paid the price, a price that we could never pay. He said, here, I can do it. Now, he was able to pay that price because he was perfect, because he was innocent. But that's why he was able to pay it. And he literally bore our sins on the cross. That's why Jesus had to become a man. And we could go on and on this afternoon asking this question, why did he do it? I don't claim to have all the answers. I don't claim to know everything about this. There are other things that I've thought of since I put this all together that I thought I could talk about. And I'm sure there are things that occur to you as well. But hopefully this will give us a little bit better idea of why it was necessary for Jesus to leave his home in heaven, to lay down the crown, and to take upon the form of a bondservant. 
in the likeness of men and to become obedient to the death of the cross. You know, when you think about, for lack of better terminology, the dual nature of Jesus and the fact that he is both God and man. The Bible says he's the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's the essence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in human form. It's hard for us, again, to sort of wrap our heads around that and to think about what that really means, that he is both God and man at the same time. And we look at what he's done for us and we think, well, you know, he is God, and so it was easier for him to be sinless. And I know that he was tempted in all points like as we are, but he's God, right? So he kind of had an unfair advantage when it comes to being sinless. And my answer to that would be, so what? (laughs) So what if he had an unfair advantage? I don't know if I'd call it that at all. That's why he's the perfect mediator, because he is fully God and he is fully man. And to look at that and say, well, he had an unfair advantage, that's like somebody drowning in in a flooding river and somebody's here on the bank saying, here, hand me, your, hand me your, your hand. Give me your hand. Oh, you're on the bank. You've got feet on, your ground, feet on the ground. You've got an unfair advantage. Why should that matter to us? Jesus paid the ultimate price. He paid the price we couldn't pay. He gave up his home in heaven. He humbled himself. He became obedient. He was tempted in all points like we are. And he gave himself and paid the price that we couldn't pay. Why did he do it? For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. There's never been a greater act of love in the history of the world than what took place on Calvary that day. What Jesus did for us is an unspeakable act of love, and that love should compel us, should constrain us, should motivate us to be like him, to follow his example, and to do what he's asked us to do. No longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. If you've got a spiritual need the church can help you with this afternoon, please come have a seat on the front row as we stand and sing.